Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to listen to my conversation with Kim Novak. Kim was awesome and actually was a surprise. Of course, I was excited to talk with her ahead of time, but I was unaware about how fluid our discussion would be. She was awesome. Chris, did you notice that she was one of the first guests to almost turn the table and start asking me questions? Oh, yeah. She was very engaged very engaged with what was going on. You guys had some great chemistry. You know, it's funny because it seems as though I always have this back and forth with our guests, which is, you know, the the intention of the discussion. But she actually was curious about our leaders. So I, mm-hmm. I thought that was I thought that was fascinating and, and oh, yeah. a fun discussion to be part of. Oh, yeah. We could definitely do some more sessions with her. Ladies and gentlemen, Kim um, has a perspective from the classroom, uh, as well as a school leadership perspective, as well as being a leader with a district. In the meantime, she works with thousands of teachers and leaders throughout the country, and her perspective is perfect for everyone to hear. You're going to love Kim. Enjoy. Ladies, gentlemen, educators, leaders, welcome to Leader Chats. For our members of the Leadership Circle, you're able to watch this when we present it live, or perhaps you're watching the the video version of this discussion. For those that are listening to our publicly available podcast, Leader Chat, welcome as well. Today is going to be a, a refreshing conversation because we're actually going to be talking about instruction. Imagine that. As many people know, when we are focusing on educational leadership, there are these daunting challenges, politics, issues of um, sometimes incredibly angry advocacy groups that are making the folk are hijacking our focus as it relates to teaching and learning. But today we're going to swing the pendulum back to actually talking about having an impact on instruction, teaching and learning. Imagine that. We have an incredible guest. I'm going to introduce her. Let me read the quick bio. So Dr. Katie Novak is an internationally renowned education consultant, author, graduate, instructor at the University of Pennsylvania, and a former assistant superintendent of schools. With 20 years of experience in teaching and administration, and earned doctorate in curriculum and teaching, and it's true, 12 published books, which kind of makes my head spin. Uh, Katie designs and presents workshops both nationally and internationally, focusing on the implementation of inclusive practices, universal universal design for learning, UDL. Uh, Very specifically know that we'll probably be throwing that UDL acronym around. Uh, It's a multi-tiered system of support and universally designed uh, leadership. So without further ado, let me invite Katie to the screen. Katie, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I am doing wonderful. I'm so happy to be here to chat about teaching and learning, which yeah. is like the core of everything and so often has to get a little backburnered. <laughs> yeah, well, and what's so sad is that, you know, I find that leaders um and we'll we'll talk about this. That that is a that is the dilemma, right? Many of our leaders while right now when our kids need we know so much about it, but actually implementing to fidelity is difficult because of the immense distractions happening in the world of education. So, but let me, let me, let's not get into it yet. 
I gave this much of your bio. You were, you know, you were not born an internationally renowned educational consultant. So give us more. Talk to us about kind of your runway, how you got to be doing what you're doing now. Um, Help our listeners understand and meet you a little bit better than I did. Okay, wonderful. So I have never been anything but an educator and I was a high school and middle school teacher and I loved teaching. I think any of us who started in the classroom have these ridiculously amazing stories about the joy these children bring to our lives. And I just thought it was just the most magnificent place to be. And I never wanted to leave the classroom. That was not the plan. I loved kids. One of my favorite stories is when I was teaching middle school, I once walked into the classroom and you know, you see like the huddle up in the back and it's like, she's here, she's here, she's here. I'm like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, what is happening? And they're like, don't worry, don't worry. It's nothing illegal. And I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, do I need to sit down for this? And they're like, no, 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 no. It's, it's, we're, I mean, it looks bad. And I'm like, oh my, what does it look like? And these sweet loves in the back were daring each other to snort curry, like the spice. Mm. And I actually had to say out loud, okay, you know what? I know that we covered a lot of expectations, but we have a new rule. We don't snort anything in here. Like that's the new rule now. And the amazing opportunity that we have to get paid to do that is just so cool. So I love teaching. I love learning. And when I was a teacher, I had this amazing opportunity to work with this organization called CAST that was really a brainchild out of the work of Dr. David Rose at Harvard University. And I was trained in UDL. And I tell people that I was a little bit of a lab rat because they were doing this study on UDL implementation. And so they spent a lot of time, a lot of people spent a lot of time in my classroom and they were like, this is so cool. Like you, you're having fun. Kids are learning at high levels. And I did some work with the teaching channel and the Gates foundation. And David Rose actually asked me to come out. And my very first presentation in front of adults was at the Harvard UDL symposium, like the national UDL symposium. I think that they're expecting something a little more like a traditional conference presentation. I come in hauling a laundry basket full of like lines and jalapenos. And I was like, I'm going to do a lesson on how to make salsa. So the first one was like, essentially I gave them a recipe in another language where like the font was incredibly inaccessible and no one was allowed to touch the ingredients. And I was just like holding them up. And and then I'm like, now let's do it in a universally designed way and you know superintendents and like you know you know chancellors from all over the world are like throwing on aprons and everyone's making their own salsa and we're playing music and so afterwards people came up to me and they said oh my gosh like can i have your card we want you to come out and consult with us and i was like Ooh, a fresh out of cards. I mean, I was you, not- you, you didn't have a card. You didn't even have a card. Oh, I was a seventh grade teacher. I had yeah. never worked with adults. So it, from there, it just kind of snowballed and I just kept getting these opportunities. And ultimately I decided to leave the classroom to become an administrator. Uh, I was a reading coordinator and an ELL director and then an assistant superintendent. Not that I wanted to leave the classroom, is that I wanted other people to realize that we could make classrooms places that people, especially including teachers, wanted to be and where we could get kids to learn at high levels. And so I was able to support teachers in my own district while actually once I got business cards, got to go some pretty cool places to do the same. 
So then, but within that process, you were obviously, you had, you had this more of a flexible position where you're not in the classroom every day. So you're able to help within your own district um, and beyond. But then you, at one point in time, you said, I'm, I'm going to do this full time and go straight into this world of consulting specific to the expertise that you had built over time. So like when and how did that happen? What was that decision process? Because that's hard for some people. I can tell you the day it happened okay. and I remember it perfectly. So I had been the last three years of my assistant superintendent contract, I was a 0.8, which gave me 52 days a year to do consulting. So I had like a 0.8 salary, a 0.8, you know, everything. And so I was basically almost once a week, you know, flying across the country. I'm right outside of Boston and I'm going to Los Angeles. I'm going to Seattle. I'm going overseas. And then I am taking a red eye and coming back to work the next day, almost once a week. Brutal. And, you know, I, I was tired, but you know, I was blessed with a lot of extra energy. So it, like I made it work for three years and I was actually thinking about doing another contract. And this was February of 2020. Oh. And so, you know, everybody, thought that I left because of COVID. And I put in my resignation in February of 2020, right before the world, like, oh. so I was in California. I took a red eye home. You know, it was just enough time to like go do a quick freshen up, go to work. And then I had like uh, the meeting with all of my principals that I worked with. And it was like an absolutely beautiful day. Like I was tired, but it was wonderful. And I love my colleagues. And I went back to my office about noon and I, you know, just quickly, quickly like looked on Twitter and there's this, uh, this blog featuring my husband and it's called the parents who stay. Now I'm a mom of four kids and his preschool, my, my son, my youngest son's preschool, the teacher created this blog and it was like, our kids are little for so long. And look at this amazing father who stays every day at drop off. And it's my husband like laying with the class puppets and playing puzzles and like putting on costumes. And I'm like, I'm not the parent who stays. Like I was just doing too much. And I'm like, I cannot do both. And so I went to my superintendent and I said, I know this seems impulsive. I said, but like, I'm in a really, really good place. And like, this was the sign from the universe that I can't keep working and doing this and keeping this pace up. And so, you know, I will stay longer if you need me to, if it takes, you know, longer to find an amazing candidate, that's totally fine with me, but like, look for someone else because I gotta be one of those people who stays. Oh my gosh. Okay. So then, and then you transition right into this world. Yeah. Right. I mean, in the midst oh of God. COVID chaos. Yeah. So then you step into it and then the world of consulting and working with must have just shifted. Did you just shift with it? Did you just wait until things got better to start? How did you do that during well, COVID? So happenstance is, you know, I come from a, a family of educators, right? Both of my parents were teachers, but my dad was, you know, an associate provost at a tech school. And he and I, 10 years ago, wrote a book called UDL in the cloud. And my dad was a professor of online courses since like 1997. And so he and I co-wrote a book together about how to create really engaging online teaching and learning. So when COVID happened, I'm like, put me in coach. Like, I got this, I got this. So I was in a space where consulting went immediately 
online, but I had this expertise of like how to make online learning more engaging and more flexible. And so it was almost the perfect storm where I was able to model what it means to provide options and choices in an online space in a way that really provides like the end user, the learner with opportunities to personalize their experience as opposed to a sit and get kind of, you know, all day, every day, you know, while your kids are screaming in the background. And then as this, and you're just writing, I mean, you're 12 books. That's, that's a I lot. So. Writing. Oh, you should see my early notebooks, Jeff. Like, I mean, the love poetry is tremendous. Like maybe someday they'll come out, <laughs> but uh, you know, ever since I was little, I had like notebooks and notebooks. So I actually really like to write. So two hobbies only right you know running and, and writing and and the writing thing turned out to be a little lucrative <laughs> okay so you from the time you were teaching yep. right and kind of really starting to lean into this you know udl etc that's when you started writing is that correct or? no so i wrote my first book when i was a seventh grade teacher my very first book was called udl now and it was after being a part of that study with a uh, cast funded by the Gates Foundation, I uh, wrote a book about my experience as being a teacher. And that was UDL Now, the first version. And from there, you know, after a couple of years, I looked back at it once I was working at the district office level and was like, oh my goodness, like, my understanding of education has evolved so much because I realized that it wasn't an accident that I became really proficient at designing lessons that work for all students. I just had so much support <laughs> where I had this amazing professional learning community with people from CAST and I had opportunities for people to come out and videotape my classroom and it was like really intensive professional development. So when I went back and read it, it was like, no, this wasn't just like I was creative. It was I was supported by a leadership team who really didn't leave any room for failure. And how do we replicate that? If we want teachers to change, how do we support that change? And so I wrote a second version of the book. I'm on the third version now. But every other book after UDL Now was really about like elevating and celebrating teachers and providing them with the tools that they too could feel like they could walk into Harvard with a basket of produce. Got it. Got it. Uh, now, here's here's something. I don't even know how to ask this. This is going to sound weird, Katie. So, oh, my God. So I love it. I love weird questions. Let's okay. Go. So UDL, um, I'm a career-long educator myself. Right? started as a fourth and fifth grade teacher, blah, blah, blah. I could tell you what the acronym meant, and I mm -hmm. could probably tell somebody who wasn't an educator in an elevator what it was and do a half-decent job. Okay. Um, but I also have to be honest that – um, I'm, I'm not an expert. As soon as something shifts from an instructional strategy to an acronym, right, like UDL, yeah. sometimes, especially being in leadership positions, all I did was know some basics. I did not know the depth of it. But I've had some time since we initially met to kind of delve into a, a couple of, you know, the, the shift to student-led and UDL playbook and really, really helpful for me. And my curiosity for you is um, what sort of misconceptions – can you maybe talk about the what of UDL and, and do a much better job summarizing it that 
than I would. And also describe all of the misunderstandings specific to UDL, because even going through your books, I thought, now I know where the misunderstanding was. My own misunderstanding, but also many of the people I worked with, um, as we would maybe throw that acronym around, probably do so inappropriately at times. Does that make sense? No, I got you. I am picking up what you are throwing down. Okay. So, you know, the idea of universal design is how do you create an experience with firm goals and flexible means? And so a lot of people just think of UDL as being like choice because when we recognize that we're all incredibly different and we realize that there's different pathways that we would need to learn or strategies that we would need to access, then that involves choice. So I'm going to give you an analogy because I love analogies. But if my firm goal was to invite you and your millions of people who are watching this live right now over to my house for a party and for my sal- for salsa. Goal, no, I'm going for with sal- I'm going with a beverage. Okay. Right that's, that's, that's that like beverage that's fine. <laughs> it's hot out. We maybe need like a little drink. And so um my firm goal is is that everybody is able to come to my house and have a drink that makes them feel like they belong, that they can actually access, because no one's leaving Novax with like dehydration or feeling like totally excluded, right? And so when we say, okay, like, you know, technically I could serve, um, you know, a, a water, mm-hmm. right? I could like bring it to the lowest common denominator and be like, that's all you get. And in some ways that is accessible to everyone, but that is not what makes a gathering. That's not what makes people feel like they're welcomed and they belong. And so what we have to recognize is the detriment to anything one size fits all. And so if my goal is that everybody has a drink and then I serve everybody like a mudslide, Uh right? Um, We can see that I'm excluding anyone who is like lactose intolerant. There's a lot of people who do not drink alcohol. There's people who are gluten sensitive. There's people who don't like the texture of like a thick shake. And so all of those people are excluded by design if I only hand out these chocolate milkshakes or these mudflies. And what a lot of people think UDL is, is like, I'm like, oh, Jeff, welcome. Um, It's mudslide night. Do you want it in a red cup or do you want it in a blue cup? And you're like, "Um, Katie, I'm... I, I don't do lactose that. intolerant, right? Or right, right. right and right. I was like, "But I provided you with choice, Jeff." And so a lot of people think just because there's choice, it's universal design. But universal design is what really is the goal, and then what might prevent really deep, relevant, authentic learning. Certainly, we look at access as well, but it goes so far beyond that. And so we say, is there another way to do this? And of course, there's another way to do this. And this is why when we go to any party in the universe, there's a cooler full of drinks and a host will always say, can I get you this or can I get you this? Or even beforehand, letting you know, this is what I'm thinking. We can potluck, we can BYOB. And the same thing happens in the classroom where we say, you know, if the goal really is a collaborative discussion, right? It's a speaking and listening goal. We actually want people to have conversations with one another. A lot of us will just default to everybody turns and talks. But if you think about the, you know, the huge variability of human experience, we know that 
there are going to be some people who need much more time to process before having a conversation or might need some sentence stems or might need the option to speak in the language of like their home and heart. And we, you know, really honor translanguaging. But even in that space, like I've gone to professional development workshops and I'll say my firm goal is that everybody is going to have a conversation and process what they learned. And so I can think of like a couple of options here, but why don't we come up with four options together? Because it's not only about the flexibility and choice, it's also about honoring voice and co-creating something. So I might say, you know, we could have a conversation and you could do think pair share, or maybe you could call a colleague who's not here, but do you have any other ideas? And people will say, oh, could we get in the car with a colleague and have a conversation while we'll go get a Starbucks? And I'm like, oh, I love that idea. Let's add that. And someone else might say, is it okay if we take the cards with like the question prompts and the sentence stems and go for a walk? I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so great as well. And so in this, the firm goal of everyone having a conversation is met, but the flexible means are created together. And that's what makes it not only universally accessible, but universally meaningful and engaging. Okay. So the, the one thing that was also really impactful and what you just described that um, I can see or has happened to me before as it relates to UDL is you started that there's this firm goal. Yeah. Right. And so I've also seen this challenge at times where um, the goal ends up as this really kind of squishy target because the concept in people's heads is like, listen, we're going to create multiple paths of a flexible way for our students to make progress and learn, et cetera, which is accurate. Yep. But then I see sometimes that bleeds into this concept of the target becoming fuzzy. I didn't yep. hear you say that. I hear you talk about that target being firm and yet multiple and inclusive process for students to get there. Um, do you ever see that in terms of the, the target sometimes oh, forgetting yeah. that it's got to be firm and clear? I mean, we do want our kids to read, right? So um, is, is that question making sense? No, it's totally making sense. So um, when we talk about reading, because uh, that literacy is my my background, where we talk about two different things. We talk about like, you know, the science of reading, which is all about decoding, you know, phonemic awareness, phonics. And then we talk about comprehension. And what most people who don't know a lot, not a lot about literacy, you know, um, don't recognize there's different strands of goals. So you have your foundational reading standards, that's kindergarten to fourth grade. And then you have your uh, more like reading comprehension standards, which are kindergarten to 12th grade. And I think that sometimes those get knotted up together where if we have a student who we know is not yet reading at a third grade level and they're in third grade, um, they still have to be able to work towards the reading comprehension standard of being able to discuss characters and their thoughts and their feelings in a third grade text. But if we know that the barrier is that students are unable to decode at that level, and we know that we're specifically working on a comprehension standard, there's so many things that we can do, like bring out visuals to activate background knowledge, provide students with options to access an e-copy of the text or to read it in another language or listen to it in another language. And you know, there's no standard that talks about the number of words that have to be read. So it's probably going to be like, a really deep read of a short, profound text. And, you know, I think that sometimes if we don't really look at what really is it that students have to know and do, and am I unwrapping 
each of those standards from the construct irrelevant factors, then I can make it more accessible. And one of the things that I always say is if you do not know your grade level standards well, you will not be able to universally design with integrity or fidelity. And there's far too many lessons and activities of which we've lost the original goal. Wait, what are you doing? Oh, uh, we're doing Charlotte's Web. Not a standard, not a standard, right? And so like you can't universally design from that. And the same goes for teacher professional development is if the goal is that we want teachers to learn about universal design for learning, please do not hand everyone a hard copy of an article that I wrote and say, this is the only way that you could ever learn about universal design for learning. There are so many ways to learn about what UDL is, and there are so many ways to share what you've learned and get feedback on that. And you know where my real passion is, because it's my, my impact right now is with educators, is I think that by modeling what UDL is, is the absolute most brilliant way to translate that into classroom practice. And so I design universal design for learning presentations all the time. And I'll say to teachers, like, what's another way we could do this? And then afterwards, I'll say, you know, can someone tell me, um, you know, what they chose and why? And, you know, who felt like they made a really good choice? And, you know, then I'll ask someone like, did anyone make a, a choice that wasn't super effective and you got distracted and you want to just share that amazing mistake with us so that we can learn from it? And, you know, and then I'll stop and I'll say, OK, look what I just did. And now take 10 minutes and here's a couple of different options you have and think about how you can like immediately tomorrow integrate that into your classroom. You know, um, I've picked up on something about you so that and you can respond to this. So from the I'm first so time. That yeah, from the first time that we talked, as well as, you know, I let's be clear, I, I know more about you than you know about me, because that's my job. I mean, I've you, been, you don't know how good my internet sleuthing is. I don't know if you can say that. Well, I've been sleuthing maybe more than you have relative. In relative okay, we can we can compete. Maybe it's not stalking; it's sleuthing. And no, it's sleuthing. No. Mm -hmm. right. And I've you know I've I've seen you talk now. I've you know uh, uh, read uh, two of your twelve books, and so. Um, what has been interesting is to watch you take something that I think is misunderstood and gets mis misconstrued probably because, you know, when things, like I say, get an acronym, they become complex to people. But you break it down in a very simple, practical way. And I assume that's one thing that many teachers you're talking with as a consultant appreciate. I mean, so... In, in your book, I, even when you talk about spa days, tacos, and a date with a 95-year-old man, you can talk about those things. But even when you bring up examples like that, coming to your house, wanting to be inclusive and serve everyone drinks, people can shake their head and they can nod and understand that. So I assume that's how you help convert teachers and help teachers understand what this is and what it isn't is you just use this lead this communication strength of yours making it very real practical and clear am i right about you on this you are so right about me jeff and i'll tell you something else i'll tell you my favorite you see i told you i know more you can't say a word about me and no but i can Let tell you that and i know i'm right Maybe next time I'll be the host. Yeah, maybe, maybe. And I'll interview you.
then we'll see. Um, my favorite activity ever, 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 ever to do with educators and leaders. I work with leaders a lot also because, you know, if we if we model this in front of educators, then we can then translate this in the classroom. And so sometimes it's even I'll start with leadership teams and say, like, from here on in, your meetings are going to be universally designed. You're going to have a really, really clear goal for that meeting. You're going to communicate it ahead of time. You're going to say, if this is something that everyone really has to know, what are all the different ways they can know it? If this is something that people have to be able to do, like what scaffolds might be necessary to provide. But a big part of that is also really listening to the barriers that people face that might be in kind of like your blind spots, just because we can predict quite a few barriers. But I mean, we're surprised every day by something we haven't yet seen. And so I always start off by working with a new team and I'll say, okay, like imagine like a little Tweety Bird angel and a little Tweety Bird, like, you know, devil cartoon on your shoulder, right? And I'll say like, you know, we got them, you know, you want to draw, you can draw them if you want, you can use mine, but like, I want this little, you know, this little devil to be in your ear and you're only going to listen to this like little devil at first. And I'll say, you know, now that I've modeled what UDL is, why would someone say this would not work? I said, you have to listen to the devil. And here's a sentence stem, right? Okay. It, you know, this might be hard because teachers don't have time. This might be hard because teachers don't feel like kids have the skills to make really responsible decisions yet. This might be hard because some, um, some schools require teachers to follow these really strict pacing guides, right? And it's not even necessarily that the teacher believes this themselves, but it's an empathy exercise to recognize what makes it challenging to think about moving from more traditional education to universal design. And we get it all out there. They can write it on slips, they could do it on a QR code and put it in a Padlet. And any pushback that you will ever receive is just out there. And it's like, okay, this is real. I don't wanna minimize this, right? teaching is hard and if we can't support teachers we don't get learning and so recognizing that these things are very real challenges i'm like do we have it all out there like we can't you know we're not quite in this little one until we know that we've heard it all everyone's like yeah we've got it we've got it i'm like okay now not to minimize that but like let's rank these what you think that people would say are like the biggest concerns and once we have them then we'll say now let's listen to the angel for a minute and just think about what is possible yeah Maybe we could, you know, it would be neat if we could try. And none of these things are a guarantee. I think that we, in some ways, look at the evidence base as a magic wand. You know, the evidence base is this strategy when used with integrity and fidelity has been successful somewhere, but it's not a guarantee that it's going to be successful everywhere. And so getting teachers in the mindset of, I can't tell you exactly what this is going to look like because your students might have barriers that I don't recognize, but ask them, why might a student struggle with this this uh, project right and give them like the little tiny devil on their shoulder and then what might we provide as options so and i have found so much success just with that one strategy of helping people feel heard and then building off the voices about if we want teachers to implement udl if we want education to change we have to be able to pinpoint the barriers that are preventing that change. And that in and of itself is universally designed leadership. So already you're, you're, you're helping us morph this conversation into how, how you have been supporting teachers and making this practical 
um, also showing empathy for some of their challenges. Oh my gosh! Right now, right? Teaching now compared to when 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 I left in 2019, which is kind of you know the school district perspective. You also write 2020. Yeah, it's shifted. It's changed. It's it's gotten harder. I think that we can probably agree yeah. on that. So as it's gotten harder and teachers and leaders, their jobs have become more challenging, not less, right? Their plates are full. They feel as though they're at capacity, if not overflowing. And therefore the concept of trying to do something different or mm -hmm. new must seem overwhelming to them at a, at a new level, even compared to just five years ago. And so what you're describing is how you're helping teachers understand that, how you're showing empathy so that they can embrace maybe a shift in their own strategy. Has, have you had to even shift some of your own empathy strategies for teachers over the last couple of years? Because it has, I mean, it's hard, it's brutal, right? Oh my goodness. And, and you know, I, I think predominantly we're talking to leaders right now. One of the things that I really struggle with is when I talk about being more inclusive, when I talk about how do we design something for all learners, a lot of leaders will say, well, you know, how do I shift teachers mindset? You know, how do mm -hmm. I get teachers to want to do that? You know, and, and don't think it's a mindset issue for the most part. You know, I think it's like a, a skill deficit in, you know, a culture of mistrust and, and fear. Whereas like teachers aren't sure what to do. They're maybe afraid of trying something different because goodness knows the idea of trusting teachers as a, as a country, right? Teachers have taken a hit. It's like demoralizing in a lot of ways to read the commentary on schools and education and things like that. And I think that teachers are, are overwhelmed. They're scared and we haven't created a great space for teachers to learn because learning is messy and learning will require mistakes. And if we're in a space where teachers cannot make mistakes, then we can't expect to see the results that we want to see to have deeper learning for all students. And when we're saying that like, you know, well, these teachers don't want to, and it's like, that's no different than hearing these kids can't. It's deficit-based, it's demoralizing. Every kid can learn with the right conditions. Every teacher can learn with the right conditions. And we just have to be more open to listening what the concerns are and not say that it's excuses or it's complaining. But, you know, recently a teacher had said to a, an administrator, you know, honestly, like, what do you expect me to do? I have this student in the class. The behaviors are incredibly dysregulated. I honestly, I don't know what to do, right? I have 20 other kids in the classroom. I'm trying to keep them safe. And the administrator's like, you know, these it's, they're so negative. I'm like, that is not negative. <laughs> like, can someone please answer that person's question? That's not negative to say my skill set, like I'm at the edge of my skill set and I, I want all these kids to learn and I don't know how to do it with these conditions. And so we need to hear that that's a barrier and we need to design the systems around teachers. And I feel like if we believe that all kids can learn, then naturally we have to believe that all teachers can do this and shifting our mindset to say, okay, then how does my teaching as a leader change for that? Okay. So I, I heard you say, talked about teachers being overwhelmed, scared, and clearly it's very, very messy this concern over making mistakes and sometimes construed as negative. 
right? Yeah. I summarize that. So this isn't a but, it's an and. Mm-hmm. And I, from my perch on the balcony as opposed to the dance floor, I can tell you, I think I would describe leaders sometimes the same as you just described teachers. So I see leaders and great, great people with incredible hearts, very intelligent, but because of the conditions that they are trying to serve and lead in, I would describe them in the same way. So while they may say, you hear some complaints from them to you about teachers, what I'm watching in the field is leaders who are overwhelmed, they're scared, Yes. They are worried about making mistakes and they, they can't admit or show vulnerability because they're judged based upon being proficient. So I see that with leaders. Mm-hmm. How do you talk to leaders then? And let's, you and I are talking to leaders now. What is your advice for them based upon their conditions, which I think are really the same in a lot of ways, they were an incredible target right in, on their oh, chest. I'm so and in so, love with this right now. Okay, so then talking about how you talk to them, because they may be talking about teachers, I promise they're in the same place, and they're worried about their jobs, you know? How do you do that? Honestly, like being, like, you know, as as an assistant superintendent who was, you know, on public TV once a week for school board meetings, our mistakes are much more uh prime time viewing for everyone. And I love that, I love that you said that, right? Because, you know, you know, I often work with like big leadership teams and I'm like, we have to have faith in teachers. We have to listen to teachers. But like you just kind of like thinking about the step above is, you know, how do we help school boards? And, you know, like it is so hard to find superintendents, you know, in the the six years that I was an assistant superintendent, I worked with three superintendents. (laughs) And so, you know, sadly, it's typical. Yeah, no, it's so typical. And, and, but like the, the issue is, you know, the speaking to leaders, right. And, and that's the, that's the group that I have access to, you know, it's like, if we can't support principals, if we can't support teachers, schools collapse, but like, what's the message to the country that it's like, if we can't run school district, what's your plan? What is your plan? So, you know, I wish that we had this platform to, you know, to speak to school boards, to be like, superintendents are scared of even speaking a sentence because they might use a word that offends a group that is ready to, I think if the term is canceling, canceling them. Yeah. I mean, and, and I've had very, very dear friends who have struggled with that. And so, um, you know what, I want to hear your answer to this too. I'm already going to switch to host. You know, what I would say is, I think that the more that we share the, the true barriers that educators are facing. And I think the barriers that principals are facing, and I know it's incredibly vulnerable and incredibly brave to say that, you know, these are the things that I am dealing with as well. I think that it's also really important to recognize that in order to totally, totally shift a culture, it has to, we, we have to show that change is possible. And I think that if we could say, you know, these are some barriers that teachers said that they were facing. And as a result, this was a strategy that we co-developed and this was the outcome on students. And so how can we maybe look at some much larger systemic barriers that are affecting leadership so that we can continue to yield these results? But honestly, I just, I want to hear your answer. What are you going to say to leaders who are in that same space? 
Well, I, I think what I find what I'm finding in leaders, and it's it's hard as you as you know to truly get their attention and kind of shake them into uh, you know a new a new way of doing things because they are afraid. They may say, "Yeah, that sounds wonderful, Jeff yeah. or you know Katie, to be vulnerable." And yes, I would love to be open and honest and show um, even, you know, the, the, the kind of chinks in my armor to people so that they are aware that I too am struggling through this, but I may not be here the next week. So it's easy to say, it's hard to do. Yeah. What I see leaders and my philosophy has been that it's interesting, we ask teachers to be collaborative, which is truly a transparent process. And yet leaders are almost conditioned to not be collaborative. They're expected to own every room they walk into. They're expected to have answers to things they truly don't have answers to. So there's this constant fake it until you make it going on. Imposter syndrome, the Peter principle, all these things at play. I think leaders do too much trying to lead what we say, don't lead alone. I think many of them are leading alone. And, oh, and how lonely. Yeah, and have not shifted this concept of how they lead with others and learn from others, even outside of their organization. So I think leaders need to be open and honest, but they can't do that if they're going at it alone. What they need is community to help them be strong, to mm -hmm. help them be clear, to help them go to their boards knowing that they have a community of other leaders doing the same. And that's a paradigm shift because we've never done that in education. Right. We are a very traditional organization. We have a board and a superintendent, et cetera, and everyone has their roles and their lane. And then we get mad at each other when they cross over that lane. It, we, we continue to recycle the same problems, even though we're working in a new paradigm. Mm -hmm. And so that is my worry for leaders. I want leaders to stop leading alone start relying on community, even and especially when it, the community is outside of your backyard. And so, like I said, I, I got to stop because I'll go on forever. But I think that this dilemma on leaders being able to take risks, even on behalf of their teachers, is a problem because I think they're in the same place that teachers yeah. are. They just have a harder time admitting it. I like want a microphone so I can drop it. Well, we're on microphone, Katie, so we're we're all good there. Mine's, mine's really nice, and it's on my desk, and I don't want to throw it on the ground. <laughs> okay, so let me ask. Let's ask this then. We were talking about this new new paradigm, and things have shifted and changed. And in the meantime, you and I, the last time we were talking, we got on this you know soapbox back and forth on what may happen in the future, right? So, I'm fascinated with AI. I'm fascinated oh with ChatGPT yeah. and what that's going to do. And I think it's going to be the next major disruptor. I think educators are not able to focus on this, nor are they. And I think this change is going to just burst in the door. And I think we should find a way to open the door and strategize around it. Yeah. But what are you seeing in terms of your work with you know, UDL as it relates to maybe some things around the corner, around the bend in terms of new innovations on their way? I mean, I'm all in. I'm all in on artificial intelligence. I think the key is actually teaching kids how to use it. So, you know, we are the industrial age is like super over. And, you know, the assembly line to prepare writing as a writer 
is not necessary anymore. And, you know, being able to go into chat GBT and to say, okay, like, this is what um, the prompt is. This is what I'm thinking. Here are some big ideas. Can you provide me with like an outline to get me started? Right. That's an incredible, incredible scaffold. The, the, the issue with chat GPT in my own experience in using it. And, you know, I'm sure there's going to be lots of other AI that gets much smarter and things like that is that like you still have to be in control of the narrative of what it's doing. So I'll find that I might say, create an outline and then I'll say, oh no, no, no. Like that is not what the prompt is. And, and I want these bullet points instead, or I'll say like, that isn't accurate. Right. But I know to do that. And I am, you know, in a place where I'm like, I can't imagine what it would be like to use it if I hadn't already developed my writing voice, if I didn't already know what I wanted to say, and I was not, you know, going to be apologetic about how I wanted to say it. And although it helps me be a little bit more efficient, I would never ever, you know, um, bend, you know, bend to efficiency at the expense of like quality. And I think that that really is the concern is that like, are we just going to ask it a question and then have it like spit out an answer and then just hand it in? And of course we should be scared of that, but it's actually most of the time, not a very good answer. And so if I was in the classroom today and I know a lot of teachers that I work with are like, like, let's point to its weaknesses and let's use it in lots of different ways and let's playground it. And like, what did you learn that it does well and saves you time with? But I think another really cool thing to do is, you know, to recognize the value of voice. And I think that's going to become much more important for teachers of writing, of which I was for a very long time, is I think that we've already lost the conventions piece. We're not diagramming sentences anymore. Like the idea of teaching grammar lessons, like that was already disruptive because of things like spell check and Microsoft Word, you know, and then it was like, then we had the organization piece and graphic organizers helped with that. And I think like the last standing trait of writing, the thing that AI can't touch yet is authentic writer voice and getting kids to think more critically about what is it that you want to say and once you can figure that out how can this tool help you to craft a draft of that more efficiently and i do not think that we should be scared of that because it leaves so much more time for the thinking piece as opposed to the assembly line of putting it together i, I appreciate you also use the word yet Right. So, um, yeah, <laughs> right. More to come on this topic. Because oh, absolutely. Yet. Uh, okay. So let me ask, this is kind of like our, our traditional famous question. I, 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 I let our guests know that the most of the, most of the systems we have to support leaders are not a talk at, this is the one content piece that we do on behalf of our leaders to take some really important topics and make them digestible and pragmatic, which is through our leader chat. Um, but if you and I would pretend that we are around a table, because we say circles are better than rows, yep, and around that table are superintendents, deputy superintendents, principals, educational leaders, and you, uh, based upon your expertise, and of course, we're on an elevator, so what, what is the elevator speech you would give them to kind of drop the mic Here's my words of wisdom or advice for you as you move forward relative to what you know, everything you know and what you're an expert on, Katie. What would you say to them to be able to kind of say, this is my last final words of wisdom, go. 
I think what I would say is that we are in the business of learning and regardless of the leadership position you find yourself in now, at our heart, we are educators and teachers. And once we are moving away from the classroom and continue to move further and further from the classroom, I think the greatest way to impact that is to continue to think about ourselves as teachers. And so for me, we can help teachers create better learning opportunities for all students by being better teachers ourselves. And so our leadership strategy should be the same as our teaching strategy, which is what really are our goals? What barriers might prevent people from working towards those goals? How do I empathize and listen to what additional barriers might be there? And what are the flexible pathways that we need in order to learn, share what we have learned to get feedback on that and grow? So I think that regardless of if you are a superintendent or a principal or a director of finance or wherever you find yourself, you're a teacher first. Katie, this is, uh, you were fantastic. Your energy is like um, coming through our screen here, which is, uh, which is fantastic. I think that you have demonstrated so much and created, you've taken this really big topic of UDL that I actually think is a big topic. And oh, yeah. the way you simplify it is so pristine and helpful. I, I thank you so much for your time and willingness to kind of lean in on a leader chat with us. And I know that our paths will cross again. So thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. It was so great to talk to you. And hopefully we can sit around a real table someday in a circle and not just here. And then I'll interview you then. Agree. Agree. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll start prepping now. Okay, perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, if, if you can't uh, feel and hear Kaney's energy, expertise, and ability as a master communicator to break down some things that are so important relative to instruction and therefore learning for our kids, well, then you're not, you may not be listening very carefully. That was a fantastic conversation. I'm so thankful that Katie Novak was able to join us. And if you have any information or questions about UDL, we'll make sure we will direct those to her. In the meantime, teachers, leaders, educators, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for the noble work you do supporting students and communities. Be well.